After years of successful games in other genres, Ed Logg decided to take his son's suggestion and make a game based on Dungeons & Dragons. Inspired by another dungeon crawler he had recently played on his Atari, he worked with a team to put his own touch on the dragon crawler genre. Some of the innovations that went in, into his project are still staples in the modern gaming era. Today, we're going to learn the story of Gauntlet along with the career of its creator, Ed Logg. Along the way, we'll learn about the creation of some of his other hits including Asteroids and Centipede. So stick around and come down to the arcade with us on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 166th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we can tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person, just one topic relevant to this week. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Today, we're all going to learn about Gauntlet, originally released as an arcade cabinet in October of 1985. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who just loves playing with others. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, what's your favorite cooperative activity? Uh, I would have to say video games. That's a fair answer. I don't really know what I was walking into with that one. That is a, a fair and very appropriate answer. So sometimes that's what you get, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you just state the obvious. So what have you been playing this week? Well, Dave, this week has seen some Rocket League, some Car Mechanic Simulator, some Raft and some of the finals. That is true. Yep. So a little bit of a loaded week. How about yourself? Well, I've spent the last week recovering from surgery, and as a result, I have zero focus. <laughs> so I've played a little bit of everything. Like uh, the Switch had a, a trial of Cult of the Lamb. I've been playing that at night. I've played Call of the Wild the Angler. I tried Call of the Wild the Hunter. I tried a game called The Descenders. I tried Cocoon. I tried Maquette. I tried Kill It With Fire. Totally reliable delivery service. Um, party animals. I played the first few hours of the remake for Dead Space. I know there's others I played. Oh, and we played the finals too. It's just been a whole lot of different things. I haven't been able to stick to just one but it do be like that sometimes indeed it do dave have you ever tripped on gauntlet before i cannot say that i have no no it's all right it doesn't even ring a bell yeah it rings a bell to the guy who made him though oh yeah and who is that his name is ed log he's been around <laughs> nice since name. like i know he's been around since the beginning of video games as uh, oh he really has. As a student student studying math and computer science at Berkeley and then Stanford, 
he remembers playing the original computer game, which is Space War, in the school's artificial intelligence lab, right? After college, he took a job at the Control Data Corporation, which was a mainframe and supercomputer firm. It was one of nine major U.S. computer companies that existed through most of the 60s. In that time period, he recalls porting games from Stanford and to the CDC computers because they were mainframe computers. So, you know, you move games back and forth. There were games such as like the original Star Trek video game, the original Dungeons video game. In the late 70s, like most gamers, he was impressed with the Atari 2600. I believe it came out in what, like 78? Coincidentally, the office that he worked in for the Control Data Corporation, they were right across the street from Atari. After hearing good things about the company from some co-workers that had jumped ship over to the Atari as a over to working for Atari, Log decided to apply for a job opening in their coin op division and was subsequently hired and brought over to the Atari team. His first project was called Dirt Bike. It was a top-down racing arcade game inspired by another game called Sprint. Sprint was a stand-up cabinet. They made it a bunch of variations like Sprint 2, Sprint 4. That was to designate how many people could play it at once. So it was a top-down racing game that would you'd control it with uh, wheel and pedals, one of the early arcade cabinets that you could race the wheel and pedals. Dirt Bike was going to be the same thing, but instead of cars, you'd race, uh, I mean, I don't know, like I guess a dirt bike. Oh, and, I was thinking like a jet ski or something. I know, right? And did they even have jet skis in the 60s? I would imagine so. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. I don't know when jet skis were made. I don't I either. Just, I never really thought about that, but I, I don't don't recall seeing them. Don't recall seeing them. You should look that up real quick when jet skis were made. So dirt bike was going to be racing dirt bikes. They were going to change the steering wheel for handlebars, which, you know, we had that was kind of the innovations back at the day. And during that, what year? Uh, jet ski was first made in 1973. There you go. So this would have been pre-jet ski. Wow. It's a crazy world. We learned something else new today, which I love. You know, I just live for that. So. So during this era of coin up development, all these games, they underwent testing to see if it would be even worthwhile to produce the cabinet. Right. So they made these games and they basically play tested them by making one of them or two of them, maybe a handful of them. And they would put them in certain locations and see how they do in the public and maybe sometimes interview people that play it afterwards. That was rare, but it did happen. And then based on mostly the amount of money that these cabinets made stacked up against, you know, they'd put it alongside the space invaders and and space wars and stuff of the world. But they would see how these cabinets would do alongside those cabinets. And if if they brought money in, they would determine that if they could sell it to the public, you know, to operators of arcades and bars and so on and so forth. And, and if it would actually be worthwhile to produce uh, most coin op games, um, most coin op games did a prototype. I've read interviews 
with various guys who made video games from this era. And more than one have said that an incredibly low number, you know, we never really talk about this, but an incredibly low number of games actually made it out of the prototyping session. Um, Like the number for one of them was like only 10% of all the projects I worked on ever made it to full production. So, you know, and most of the time the prototypes would just get destroyed. I mean, we're lucky enough to have some of them. There are some, um, uh, you know, I can't think of any off the top of my head right now, but there's some famous arcades where there's maybe three or four in existence because they were prototypes and saved, but others like were destroyed or repurposed. Like their chips were just rewrote written over because what's the point, you know? No, that's a good point. I'd never thought of that. It's pretty, pretty weird. Well, dirt bike is in the category of never seeing existence because it was not successful enough to move into production the project was completely canceled. I did my usual digging to see if anyone had, uh, you know, a picture or anything in the cabinet. I couldn't find it. So I don't believe dirt bike and or its prototypes lived. That's the end of that. So. Well, damn, I know. Well, dirt bike was going through production. The co-founder of Atari, Nolan Bushnell, was overheard saying that he wanted Breakout, the 1976 brick-breaking arcade title updated. Now, we've covered Breakout before. We did a whole whole episode on it, which was episode 141. Breakout is a very important title in video game history. It's at the center of some of the early court cases that are all about video game copyright. I can guarantee if you've never researched it or listened to that episode, you probably don't know all the parties involved. There's a whole lot of heavy hitters involved in that story. Steve Jobs has a place in that story. Uh, Famous Supreme Court Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg has a part in that story. Uh, Go check it out. It's episode 141. But here we are, and it's time to update Breakout. A man named Ed Rothberg takes up the helm, and alongside him is our you know, star of our story, Ed Log. Now, the original breakout was designed as an arcade cabinet using discrete logic chips. Also part of the story. Really cool how they they worked on that. Uh, it ended up having about 100 chips. Um, seriously, go check it out. There's a whole story around all the logic chips. There was a, you know, a, a bounty for for getting it within a record. By the time they were here developing Super Breakout, though, arcade cabinets were using microprocessors, which meant that the team basically had to rewrite the, the, the game from scratch. Despite the fact that it's similar to its previous version, now you have to turn what's a, stuff that's essentially done by a bunch of chips to code that's processed by a microprocessor. In an interview found within a book called Game Design Theory and Practice 2nd Edition, Ed Log describes the process of designing games at this point in the industry. We had one main digital computer, he said, which had the cross assembler for our 6502 base games. We had several girls who would enter our handwritten pages into our program and give us back a computer printout and a paper tape. We would then feed the paper tape through our development system into the RAM, which replaced the ROM on our circuit board. We would debug this using primitive tools and a hardware analyzer and then write our changes on the paper printout where it's in a repeat. Since this process left time between the debug section and the next version while they typed everything out, I used this time to develop a second game. 
I would just swap the graphics, uh, the graphics ROM, which we had to program ourselves, load the new paper tape. And in that way, I could kind of work on two projects at once. So soon after finishing Super Breakout, which ended up doing very well, Log found himself in a meeting with Atari executive Lyle Reigns. Reigns wanted him to work on an unfinished game that Log later recalled seeing before somewhere in the Atari building. You were trying to shoot the other player, he recalled, but this asteroid was in the way. Players tried to shoot it. I know I did, even though it couldn't be destroyed. Rain said that everyone just seems to shoot the rock, so let's create a game that lets you blow it up. That game, which we now know was called Cosmos, borrowed its physics model, control scheme, and gameplay from the earliest arcade games, including Space War, Computer Space, and even Space Invaders. But they had a good idea around it, and so they spent this meeting coming up with the design, and by the end of the meeting, they had the entire design of what would become the famous game Asteroids worked out. So players would shoot the big asteroid, which would turn into smaller asteroids, and so on and so forth until they are destroyed. Uh, as far as I know, this is our dad's favorite game. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, it I, is. Don't, I don't think that's ever changed, unless Battlefield took the helm. I don't Let's know. Let's say Asteroid classically, Battlefield modernly. So I still think it's Asteroid, even modernly. <laughs> And that guy just loves that game. But Log saw one potential problem with their initial design. Once players were down to one rock, there was nothing stopping them from flying around and doing nothing to prolong gameplay and just, you know, keep other people from playing the game. So Log ended up coming up with a solution. There were two different UFOs. One is nicknamed Mr. Bill and the other is nicknamed Sluggo. They were named after the SNL sketch. These UFOs would appear on the screen and shoot at the player to prevent him from just sitting around to keep other players from being able to play the game. Now, we know that Asteroids ended up being an absolute success. It knocked Space Invaders off its pedestal as the most popular arcade cabinet in the United States. And it ended up being Atari's best-selling game of all time. I really find that fascinating if you think about it. like Because to me, Space Invaders, it, like if I had to choose between the two... Space Invaders would be my choice. I I I guess it was like by the time it came around, people were tired of Space Invaders. I don't know. It's tough. I just think that there's more happening in Space Invaders. I've always thought of it like in my mind, it's a later, more advanced game. And actually, it came before. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Sure, Dave. I didn't play no. enough of them really to have much of an opinion. So, you know. So Log ended up receiving a promotion sometime after the success of Asteroids, and he found himself in charge of assigning other people to develop the ideas laying around at Atari. Somewhere around this time, it would be about 1980, there is a young computer programmer at General Motors. Her name is Donna Bailey, and she hears the debut album of The Pretenders, I believe it was self-titled, and there's a song on it, called Space Invaders. A friend had heard Donna say that she had liked the song Space Invaders, and he got really excited. He told her that there was a Space Invaders game at a bar nearby. Uh, she had, did, had no idea what it was, never tripped on it before. 
So they went to lunch so that she could see what the song was about. And she recalls that the first time she played Space Invaders, she lost all of her lives before she could even figure out what you had to do on the screen. But as she continued to play it, she found it, she found video games like really intriguing, right? So she began to ask around about Atari. So Donna Bailey found video games intriguing. She began to ask around about Atari as a company. She learned that Atari was using the same Motorola processor for their video game systems as she was using to program the climate control system in cars. I believe she was the one who programmed them for Cadillac at the time for Cadillac cars at the time. So she applied to Atari. She is one of the early female game programmers. She was one of the early females to have assembly programming experience in the entire United States is my understanding. And she used that to get a job here at Atari. Um, you know, she used her experience programming these Motorola processors to apply to Atari and was hired into their arcade division where she was working under Ed Log. She recalled looking at a notebook that Atari had at that point, which was filled with the ideas of game projects that hadn't been made. Speaking of projects that haven't yet been made, we have quite a lot of those ahead of us, don't we, Rob? Well, I suppose we do, Dave. Yeah, you know, each week we spend countless hours researching, writing, recording, and producing each episode of A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. That's right. When we first started, we spent many, many more hours than we do now, didn't we? Yeah, we sure did. Uh, it, there were problems left and right, but that was before we found the all-in-one set of podcasting tools provided by Zencaster. With Zencaster... It's super easy to record a podcast. Everyone logs in using their web browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. It allows you to record up to 4K video with your guests. And with Zencaster's multi-layered backups, you always have the highest quality recordings, even if the connection's unstable. And with Zencaster, you never really have to worry about what you sound like. Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes all those ums and ahs, gets rid of all those awkward pauses and conversation. You can also set the right podcast loudness and reduce background noise. And this is all done with a single click of a button. And even if the thought of podcasting overwhelms you because you think you need a bunch of different tools and services, you can relax. With Zencaster, those days are over. With their all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and edit distribute it to multiple major destinations. So if you'd like to start your own podcast, or maybe you already have one and you're looking for some new tools, looking to take it to the next level, we've got a deal for you. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use our offer code memory card lane, and you can get 30% off your first month of any of Zencaster's paid plans. Sign up for Zencaster today. And you can experience the same ease in producing your own high quality podcast as we do each week. So go out and share your ideas with the world. And speaking of ideas, Rob, the only idea that Donna Bailey found in that notebook that she didn't find violent was a short two sentence description about a multi segmented insect that walks out on the screen and winds its way down towards the player. 
So she got herself assigned to the project by Ed Log. She became the software developer and software engineer on what would later be known as Centipede. Oh, damn. I thought it was Snake. Log is said to have worked on game design, while Bailey did about half the programming on Centipede. It was her first video game project. Centipede, as we know now, was one of the first games to have a significant female player base. While designing Centipede, uh, Ed Log and Donna Bailey intentionally made decisions that would allow the game to appeal to wide audiences and not just male gamers. The trackball-based gameplay could be picked up by anyone, and the bright pastel color scheme, that was honestly a happy little accident. One morning in 1981, Bailey recalled, I was working on some code in the lab at the game development cabinet. Centipede's technician needed to make one quick adjustment to the game for some reason, and he asked me if he could take the game, cabinet and all, away from me to do what he needed. This was the only time I remember our technician borrowing the game from me while I was working, so I was patiently waiting for him to finish and give the game back to me. Our technician was behind the back of the game cabinet, and I was in front of the cabinet watching the changes that were cycling through on the screen as he worked. Suddenly, the regular primary colors on the screen changed to hot and vivid pastel colors I had never seen before. I made a yip of approval, and I asked our technician to keep those colors. I could hardly wait to work with the new colors that day, and I felt lucky that I was in the right place to notice an improvement that added no extra costs and used no extra space. Pretty neat. I agree. Just a, you know, right place, right time. For Edlog, the success of Centipede led to him working on the sequel a year later, Millipede. Somewhere in this time period, he had also decided that he was done with supervising. He liked making games, not so much directing people to make games, and he decided that he was spending just way too much time not being able to make games as the boss. During this time, his son, who I believe was about nine at the time, was also begging him to make a Dungeons and Dragons based game. And at some point, while Log's son was bothering him to make said game, he tripped on a game on the Atari 1800 called Dandy. So Dandy had come out at some point in 1983. It was a dungeon crawl maze game that was created for the 8-bit computer family. It was released as part of the Atari program exchange. Um, if you don't know, the Atari 8-bit computer family were their early computers, like the Atari 400 and the Atari 800. I think we had an 800 in the house, if I remember correctly. That was the first computer. That, I believe the Atari 800 was the first computer I ever learned to program basic on. So, so Dandy got its start as a bachelor's thesis, thesis for Jack Palovich as he was wrapping up a degree at MIT. It was originally called the Thesis of Terror. It was an idea for a five-person game. Four, per, four players would use an Atari as a graphics terminal, while a fifth player would act as a dungeon master and control the game from a different terminal. That was obviously influenced by Dungeons & Dragons. Um, it was also said to be influenced by 
a bunch of relatively unknown maze games. There was, you know, we talked about this before. There were a ton of games and clones at the time. So he, they just remember being influenced by several unknown maze games. And then they were also influenced by the 1981 hit game Defender. With the time that he was given to work on his project, Palovich was able to create gameplay for four players on an Atari, but he was unable to implement the Dungeon Master role in time. Early versions of his Thesis of Terror allowed players to attack one another, but this feature was removed after playtesting. As you can imagine, uh, once players found out that they had the ability to shoot their friends, um, they, they just... You know, the game quickly devolved into a, a, a useless free-for-all. And the way the game was designed, once you were dead, you had to sit out the rest of the game until everyone had died. So playtesters would just, like, it devolved into a free-for-all, someone would die, and they would restart the game immediately and not see through on it. So it ended up being not a useful feature for this 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 you know, type of game, this dungeon crawl game. Um, so yeah. So he worked on it, got a four-player dungeon crawl maze game finished, turned that in as his thesis, his bachelor's thesis. So the thesis of terror was finished, and um, Palovich finished his MIT degree. Afterwards, he found a job at Atari, got hired into their research division. There, he helped design an operating system for an unreleased computer, which was called the Atari Sierra. And then he worked on a project called the Atari Amy Soundtrack, which also sound chip. The Amy Soundchip also never found production. So, you know, this guy's got a, a, a stellar track record. Yeah, a whole lot of stuff that just never came to be. I'm surprised anything got out. Yeah, well... Something did get out because while working at Atari, he took his thesis of terror and he kept working on it. Um, He changed it from because it was a game that did interface with mainframe computers like it had uh, the ability to get maps uploaded to it Um, that ended up coming out. Um, So basically, he cleaned it up, you know, made it work as its own standalone product and uh, released it through Atari's exchange program which we've studied before. It was a way for like little um, little publishers to, to get their, their games out there. God, I can't remember the last game. I can see the last game we talked about that was an exchange program. It was made by a student. It was a musical game. The last time we talked about an exchange program was a musical game, if I'm not mistaken. Which I would have been like... Recall. That was like our first episode of this year. So it, it's like 11 months ago. So Thesis of Terror became Dandy, which is a play on the term D and D. Good one. Yeah. Dandy was released to the world. From what we know, it is one of the first video games with four player simultaneous cooperative gameplay. In it, players are equipped with bows and unlimited arrows and they fight their way through a maze containing monsters, monster spawners, keys, locked doors, food, and bombs in search of an exit leading to the next level. If the player dies, they can be revived by finding and shooting uh, re- they're called revival hearts. The game also came with an editor that would allow players to make new dungeons. So that was kind of cool. Hmm. It was a neat concept. 
And not very common. No, not very common. But I mean, really not at the time. Well, yeah, that's I mean, now it's definitely a lot more commonplace. But, you know, I was speaking in the context of the given time, oh, Dave. Oh, man. Crazy how you did that. And so Dandy falls in the hands of Ed Log. And, you know, after Harry and his son nag at him to make a D&D game and then playing Dandy, he was inspired to create his own Dandy, so to speak. So design on his new project starts around September 30th, 1983. There is an internal design document from Atari for this project. The project is titled Dungeons. It's the document is dated January 4th, 1984, and it has a brief storyline, which is as follows. The noble knights and magicians of the realm must rid the castle Mordanima of the evil demons and monsters and restore it to its original glory. One to four players act and react in a multi-level maze dungeon castle. Fast action, real-time adventure game with players cooperating with each other to stay alive. Players must navigate the maze, kill the nasties, eat food, collect treasures, open doors, and find their way deeper into the dungeon until they reach the Hall of Death. This is the final resting place of lost goodies. They will then grab as much treasure as they want and try to escape back to daylight, thus ending the game. Or possibly the player could start another trip at this point. That's in parentheses. They continued this design document with a uh, section entitled Brief Character Description. Player characters will be selectable. Eight different starting characters will be available for the player to choose from. The characters will all be somewhat different, yet relatively equal. Some would have good short-range ability, but lack some long-range power or the speed of another. They would be dressed or color-coded to distinguish them as to player ownership. The player pawns would move around the maze controlled by the player. They will need to find keys, food, uh, treasure, and other assorted items while trying to kill their opponents. And then the document divvies the character up into three categories. And in those categories, we see where the design team had been looking for inspiration. So, number one, long range. Some missile weapons, arrows, fireballs, rocks, whatever. Lily says dot, 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 whatever. Oh, uh, okay. Does, does damage to opponents similar to centipede. Number two, short range, sword, or other close-in weapon does damage to opponents similar to Joust, Ultima 2, or Alibaba. And number three, smart. Smart bomb would kill all, with exceptions as in parentheses, opponents within a screen area similar to Defender and Dandy. So the team took the design document. They laid down their first player arts on January 12th, 1984. They started out with the designs for four characters. Uh, on the art design, the little sketch of them, they're named the Amazon, the Hawk, the Magician, and then there's an elf light character that doesn't have a name under it. Of course, we know it becomes the elf. Oh, good. Clever. I know, right? Now, what makes Gauntlet unique 
is that it is one of the, if not the, it probably is the absolute first game to allow for drop-in, drop-out gameplay. It's oh. definitely not it's definitely not the first game with four players, right? We talked about Dandy and in arcades. You already had games like Tank, which had eight players. Uh Sprint had four players for it. You know, they had Sprint four and four players. So there were a lot of games at the time that already had four players. But any game like that, you started and you stopped together, right? So like you can't pop into a game of sprint in a race in the middle of the race. That's that's just not how it works. You start the race, you end the race, end of your quarter. What they were going for with Gauntlet is they wanted to allow people to pop a quarter in and join the game no matter where the other players in the game were. It was discussed as part of the design and the marketing, right? If you always have the ability to have four people on one cabinet at one time, it means that you have a constant flow of income, not it starts when this match starts and it ends when this match ends. You know, when one person dies, they can pop in another quarter to keep going or another person can replace them and pop in another quarter. It is a constant income stream. And of course, I mean, that's more money, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, unless who, they find a way to cheat it. Who doesn't like more money? Of course, they were going to go for that. So the team kept working on their design document, you know, the design document, and they had to sit down and work through some technical issues that needed to be resolved in order to make this work. And that meant working with a hardware engineer. That's the way teams worked at the time. You you had design engineers, software engineers, hardware engineers that would make the circuit board and put it all together to make everything work. You know, so it came time to work with a hardware engineer because they wanted to do some things that were pretty complex for design at the time. And of course, when you design something, you have to work in a way to make hardware that does your design, but is also cost effective to manufacture. Because if it's too expensive, people aren't going to buy it. They're just not going to buy it. Unfortunately, there were no hardware engineers available to the team at the time. They were all stuck on other projects. So the team was kind of all scattered and asked to work on other projects for a short while. Ed Log, for example, was asked to work. The, the company was trying to put together a Roadrunner like Laserdisc arcade game. Uh, we've done Laserdisc before. We did a, an episode on Dragon's Lair. I can't recall what episode off the top of my head, but... Laserdisc is a really fascinating technology that was really on the cutting edge of technology for a short while. And um, so everyone was jumping on it, including, um, you know, Atari here. In the end, it ended up being not very reliable. Laserdisc players were prone to breakdowns, and that meant that those arcade cabinets would break down more often and then be down, which meant no money. And so they just kind of, you know, lost popularity because of their unreliability they still did some really fascinating things. And Atari wanted to work on a licensed Roadrunner disc um, that would kind of be a Roadrunner game and then would kind of switch to like the actual cartoons. When you got to certain periods, it could switch freely back and forth. I mean, Dragons there was a cartoon. Um, this was going to be a Roadrunner game in the same style, which is kind of cool to think of. I don't think this Roadrunner game ever saw the light of day. Um, during this period of time, there were layoffs at the arcade division in Atari. This would have been 
circa, I don't know, 84, 83, 84. And if you recall, the whole video game industry crashed in 1983. So things were really volatile in the years that followed, um, you know, and we think of it as affecting co- the console industry, but it affected the coin op, the arcade industry as well. So the team got through this little bit of time. And according to Log, I, I got to watch. He's got a, a CG's um, Game Developers Conference, GDC. He's got a GDC interview where he covers like the entirety of the development of Gauntlet. Um and and pretty in detail too. It's really impressive. Uh, the team came back together on February fifteenth, nineteen eighty five. At least what was left of the team after layoffs. So they fill in the gaps. Uh, they get back to work. Um, about April of nineteen eighty five, the working title for their their game becomes legally unavailable to the company, meaning another company found it and trademarked it. So Dungeons is off the table. Uh, in the following month in May. They find a new name for the project, uh, Gauntlet, which is what we're discussing today. This time, a hardware engineer was available, so the design team sat down with a hardware engineer and and got to work. As it turns out, they needed a lot of chips to make the game work the way they wanted to. And because of that, their PCB, their printed circuit board, I'm going to joke and call it their proposed circuit board right now, It needed to be huge. Like, I think their first design had an 18 by 18 board and like a 16 by 8 board as a riser. I mean, we're talking a huge circuit board. Yeah, that's insane. And that was a problem because there were restrictions on the size of PCBs for Japanese cabinets. So the team had to come up with a solution to make their circuit board in a smaller form factor. Because of this, they worked on designing a more complex circuit board. You see, up until that point, all of the PCBs in Atari machines were what we call two-layer circuit boards, which is exactly what it sounds like. There's a top layer and there is a bottom layer. But in order to squeeze everything they wanted into a smaller space, the hardware team actually had to design what we call a four-layer PCB, which is also exactly like it sounds. A really simple way to look at it is that you take two of the two-layer circuit boards and you just sandwich them together. So now instead of having two paths, the one on the top and the bottom, you have a top path, a bottom path, and then you have basically two internal paths uh, to design your circuitry and lay out everything the way you need it to lay out. Is that kind of a fair way to state it, Rob? Uh, yeah, yeah, you you just have a lot of conductive material separated by non-conductive material. And it's, I mean, and the difference is you can hide a lot in the middle, so. No one at Atari had ever laid out a four-layer PCB before. No one had ever designed anything as compact as they needed circuitry-wise. It was really cutting edge. Gauntlet became the first four-layer PCB board for Atari, and it became the standard by which all future circuit boards were designed in Atari cabinets. They pretty much, I mean, I'm sure there were exceptions, but they switched to four layer PCBs pretty much moving forward, you know, because once they got through the first one, once they figured out how to make it fit together and make it work. And then like when you have a four layer printed board, all the little soldering points are what we call traces. 
that's kind of the way to put it. All the traces on the board had to be smaller than they had ever dealt with before. So they had all these technical problems to work through. And once they worked through them, um, they decided that four layer PCBs were the way to go moving forward. I think it took that 18 uh, by 18 with the riser board to like 14 by 12 as the final board or something like that, which was perfectly able to fit inside all the limitations. So, and there were some other problems to solve too. You know, the team innovated in many different ways. You know, there were actually five patents granted for this game where we can see some of their innovation. One, of course, is they patented the the multiplayer cooperative gameplay that hadn't been done yet. They designed a collision algorithm where they kind of divvied up the map in grids and only focused on collision in those grids so they could have really good collision uh, that was kind of complex without completely draining the system. So they worked on a collision algorithm, which they were able to patent. They were granted a patent for what's called look ahead motion objects, where again, you don't want to write the whole screen and everything on it. Let me, let me put that into perspective. One of the things that Gauntlet is famous for is, is having waves of enemies come at you. And I mean waves of enemies coming at you. Like the number of enemies that would come at you at one time was more than had ever been seen in another game. And when you design a game like that, that's more resources, right? More memory is needed to write the objects, more audio, more video, more everything. So you're trying to do this, but you're trying to do this on the same technical limitations as everything else, right? The same processor, the same limited amount of RAM, the same everything. And so the way like we have that same problem in modern gaming, right? Like, you only have so much memory and processor and in our case, you know, video memory, graphics cards, things like that. And so a common way to overcome that is that you don't write, like you don't draw and calculate the whole world at one time, right? Because if your computer tried to calculate the whole of World of Warcraft or the whole of Starfield or whatever game that you're doing in like an open world game, for instance, it wouldn't work it would like your frame rate would be like 0.1 frames per second, for instance. Right. So the way it called like procedural generate general generation. I don't know what it's called or something honestly. like that. I thought that's what it was like, because as you go, it, it automatically right. generates it. Right. So that's exactly how they do it nowadays. So it basically looks to your field of mode, like your field of view and okay. So you're looking in this direction. And so the only thing that it's drawing is the stuff that's in that direction. The only thing that is calculating is the stuff in that direction. I mean, that's simplifying it. Sometimes they calculate things outside of your field of motion, depending on the game. But I mean, the way they do it is it really, things are only happening where you're going. And that was a novel concept. And they worked something similar back here. It was a concept called look ahead motion for the objects. And basically it just set the objects in motion as you looked ahead towards them. And they, they kind of use that to make the multiplayer waves here in um, Gauntlet and um, patented it. And then they designed something called slips. Um, it's called starting link points. You know, there were over a thousand different motion objects possible in Gauntlet. It was a big game. They had to derive a method with how to tell the game only to draw which objects they wanted on screen related to what we we're just talking about. 
and not all thousand objects that it had in the game's memory. So what these slips were, these starting link points, they were basically points that had lists attached to them. And that list was what needed to be drawn. And and that is how the game told itself what needed to what needed to be what needed to show up on the screen. Um, so they were able to patent that because that was a new technique to go about that too. Um, so they patented that with a few patents, actually. Um, so there were all sorts of interesting things. All sorts of interesting things. So the team finishes the game. By now, you know, they originally had said that they wanted eight players in the design document, but, you know, we kind of only saw four in the art. They never got past those four. So they whittled it down to those four, which ended up being a warrior, a wizard, a Valkyrie, and the elf that we originally saw. Like coin-op games were of the time, the game was put through playtesting. They actually did do a player survey at its first field test, which, like I said earlier, was not commonly done. In its first field test, they interviewed 19 players. Player ratings of the game were almost as high as possible in the rating system. One player admitted to dropping about $50 in his first session with the game, which is crazy in $1984. First session, too. Like, that's... That's what we spend now on an entire game. Yeah. And that's a session. Like, they're going to go and spend more. There was a lot of successful playtesting. Over the course of 16 weeks weeks in San Mateo, the cabinet earned $15,000. They popped it into a playtesting location in Canada in October of 1985, early October of 1985. And over nine days, it earned $4,500. So by then, they already knew that the game was going to be a smashing success. So also in October, they started showing off the game at trade shows. They started taking orders. And by late October, they were shipping them off to domestically North America. Within another month, they were shipping out to Japan. And Gauntlet remained a huge success, depending on what publication you check out. It's either the highest or second highest earning cabinet for all of 1986. Atari ended up selling something like 7,800 cabinets domestically. I saw an internal document where they had this stacked up against another game, which was called the Temple of Doom, which they only sold about 2,800 cabinets, just to kind of give you an idea how big this was for them. And sometimes with success comes controversy. You know, Gauntlet is incredibly similar to its inspiration, Dandy. So, of course, shortly after its release, the creator of Dandy, John Palovich, threatens to sue. Basically says, hey, this is my game concept. You just kind of changed a few things and you named it something else. So, of course, Atari and Palovich, and I'm guessing Log and everyone sit down and um, go to arbitration. They end up settling the claim out of court. It is famously reported that Palovich was given a gauntlet arcade cabinet for his part in creating call it wow here's your compensation you get a cabinet yeah there have been some rearranging of the credits for the game in various versions i think log's name was taken off some of the early versions or ports or i don't i don't remember how it is I, i forgot to look it up but um he gets he gets credit now he's credited correctly in the credits um in versions that's all changed um you know between the game and its ports Speaking of ports, 
Gauntlet is Everywhere was eventually ported to DOS, Apple II, Macintosh, MSX, NES, Apple II, GS, Master System, Atari ST, Commodore 64, Atari 8-Bit Family, Amstrad CPC, ZX Spectrum, and it even made its way to the PlayStation 1 as part of Midway's Arcade Greatest Hits, the Atari Collection 2. Dandy, as a side note, was eventually reworked by Atari and published for the Atari 2600, 7800, and their 8-bit computers as a game called Dark Chambers, which wasn't nearly as good as the original. Like, it was only a two-player game, and it had way few enemies on screen as um, as Dandy did. So they kind of took it, all the fun out of it and re-released it as Dark Chambers. Go figure. Nice. Yep. All right, so... In case you don't know, Gauntlet's A came out in 1985, October 1985. It's a fantasy-themed hack-and-slash-arcade game. It is one of the first uh, multiplayer dungeon crawl arcade games, probably the first with drop-in, drop-out play. The game is set within a series of top-down third-person mazes where the object is to kind of find and find, you know, you get to the exit in every level. There are various items in each level that kind of help you get there. Um, there are items that increase the player's health. There's keys to unlock doors. There are items that give you points. There are magical potions that can destroy all the enemies on screen, hence the smart bomb in the original design document. You can take control of one of uh, four characters. Like I said, there was the warrior, Thor. There was a wizard, Merlin. Uh, Thyra was the Valkyrie, and Questor was the elf. Um, their, their character names are on the arcade cabinet, but it never refers to them by anything but their title, their warrior, wizard, Valkyrie, or elf in the game itself. Uh, each character has their own strength and weakness. So like the warrior is really good in hand-to-hand combat. The wizard has powerful magic. The Valkyrie is like a tank. It has the best armor and the elf is the fastest in movement. So, um, Yeah. Your player that you pick is assigned by where you stand on the cabinet in the original version. Uh, You don't get to pick it like, you know, the left side was the warrior will always be the warrior. They did eventually make a two player version of this cabinet to be able to sell it to like doctor's offices and places that don't have the space for the big four person cabinet. And in the two player version, you could select your own character that changed for the two player version. One of the coolest things about this, aside from the ability that you could play four players uh, at any time, uh, this game also had a voice chip built in. It had a Texas Instruments speech chip. And while you were playing, the game would make statements about the game's rules, like shots do not hurt other players. Remember, don't shoot food. Elf shot the food and warrior needs food badly. Uh, The narrator would occasionally comment on the battle, saying things like, I've not seen such bravery, or let's see you get out of here. When a player's life force falls below 200, the narrator would state, your life force is running out, Elf needs food, or Valkyrie is about to die. I remember playing Gauntlet. I think I played the NES version. I mean, it's a top-down dungeon crawler where mass uh, waves of enemies come at you and you, you fight fight through them to the exit and you keep going and going and you going. It's like, uh, seeing how I know seeing how far you can get in waves. It's a style of gameplay that has never really died. You know, um, it has just, um, changed. It's just changed. You know, it, 
I think it's fair to say Gauntlet didn't invent the multiplayer dungeon crawl, but it certainly popularized it. It paved the way for many games that came after it. Diablo is like the first one that comes to mind and games like it, like Borderlands, you know, games that we're very fond of. There are many shoot and loot games that have come after it. It also started the template of drop in, drop out arcade play that became a thing. You see that become incredibly popular shortly thereafter, like 1991. A few years later, you had the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade game. Rob, you and I played the Simpsons arcade cabinet recently. That would have been a drop out, drop in, drop out, four person style of gameplay. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. And that, and, and that Simpsons game, you would have just been able to walk up to the cabinet and pop quarters in at any time to join the game. So, um, and that became a thing. Like, it, 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 you know, there are certainly games that don't allow for it, but I would say that like a lot of cabinets nowadays are designed with drop and play if it's a multiplayer game. Um, that just became the thing, and it makes sense from the marketing standpoint. You know, um, you know, any instead of having to wait for someone to die to be able to play a game, you potentially can extend the game further. And just um, at any time, someone could walk up and 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 keep playing, you know, more money longer. So someone else could just come along and wait till you're at the next to last level before you run out of cash and take the glory, huh? One hundred percent. Yes. Damn. Yep, yep, yep. Well, Gauntlet stuck around as a series. Gauntlet 2 came out a year later in 1986, which is basically an expanded version of the original. The most significant change to it is this one finally allowed you to pick your uh, pick your character and multiple players could choose the same class of fighter. So you could have two warriors or two elves or two wizards in the second gauntlet, which made for some different styles of gameplay. In 1990, we saw Gauntlet, the third account, the third encounter, which was a completely new gauntlet title made specifically for Atari's handheld called the Atari Lynx. Confusingly enough, a year later, they also made Gauntlet 3, The Final Quest, which was the actual continuation of the series. It added four more player classes for a total of eight, and it was an isometric game, like kind of like the original Fallout, and not top-down like Gauntlet was has been. Gauntlet 4 came in 1993. It added a RPG quest mode, which basically took the gameplay of Gauntlet and added character leveling and item purchasing. Sound familiar? We're getting real. We're getting real close to some modern games. Gauntlet Four also had a complete port of the original Gauntlet that could be played. In fact, Ed Log worked on Gauntlet Four. Um, Gauntlet Legends came out in 1998. Gauntlet Dark Legacy, an expansion of Legends, came out in 1999. Then in 2005, we got Gauntlet: The Seven Sorrows. And finally, they tried to reboot the series in 2014 with the appropriately named Gauntlet that didn't really amount to anything. Hmm. A whole slew of games I've never even heard of. Yeah, yeah, it's been quiet on the Gauntlet front since um, since then. So, I, I mean, it's not very well known. Ed Logg's career kept going after Gauntlet. He actually helped bring Tetris to arcades and NES during that whole confusing time period in which everyone was licensing Tetris. That's a whole mess and story in itself that if you want to learn more about, we covered Tetris back in episode 93. But Ed Log made the Tengen because Atari was owned by Tengen at the time. Um, Ed Log helped make the uh, 
he helped convince them to license and bring the the Tetris to um, over here with a Tengen version. And he stayed working for Atari Games pretty much up until it was no more. Um, he actually worked on the very first four-player game for the Nintendo 64, which is not Mario Kart like some people might believe. In fact, a whole month prior to Mario Kart being released, Atari Games released Wayne Gretzky's 3D Hockey. It became the first four-player game for the Nintendo 64. He also worked on porting so he worked on all the home versions of the San Francisco Rush series, the racing game. He brought them from arcades. I think there's three in the San Francisco Rush series. He brought all three titles over to the Nintendo 64. His last game credit came in 2002. He designed a platform game called Dr. Muto, which was published by Midway Games in 2002. The game follows Dr. Muto, a maniacal genius mad scientist whose latest experiment has accidentally destroyed his own home planet in order to rebuild his world he steals organic matter from neighboring planets dr muto uses his invention called the splizz gun to mutate and morph into other organisms to complete his tasks um, it was a platform game that was it got mixed review by critics so he makes dr muto in 2002 and then he retires He's been retired ever since. I, I don't see anything about what he's done since 2002. So he is, my guess is teaching and lecturing and things like that. But, you know, he's been retired since making Dr. Muto in 2002. And, um, yeah, I mean, a few years later, we got Gauntlet and everything just kind of stops there, right? 2002, Ed Log retires. 2005, you get the last, last Gauntlet game, and then everything is kind of silent. So... Yeah, that's that's really it. That's all she done wrote. But the legacy lives on. Drop in, drop out gameplay is now a staple of video games. And um, and the multiplayer dungeon crawl is like some of your biggest games, biggest game series are based on that style of gameplay, you know? So, yeah, you can't deny can't deny it at all. It laid the framework for a lot of things that came after it. So. And that's the story of Gauntlet. Now, if you want to go back and look at some of learn about some of the other things we talked about today, like Tetris in episode 93 or um, episode 150 something for Breakout. Breakout. I really like the Breakout episode. That was a really fun story. Uh, of course, you could do so by going to our website, which is www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can people do on our website? Well, Dave, you can find a calendar of both previous and future episodes. Uh, you can find links to things such as our Discord, where you can come hang out, play games, or just talk crap with Dave and I. You can find a link to our Patreon, where for a couple of bucks, you can help support us, get access to ad-free and unedited by Zencaster recordings, as well as on our website. On our website, you can also find links to our social media where I can be found on several platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and Dave. I can be found on various platforms as David is wrong. All right, ladies and gentlemen, each week we love to tell you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. This week, some years back in October of 1985, Gauntlet was released to the world. 
each week when we research these topics, we learn things. It's honestly the best part about doing this podcast week in, week out is as we research to teach you things, we learn things ourselves. So in recognition of that fantastic cycle of teaching and learning, we like to go roundtable and talk about what we learned today. So Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Dave, I think that my big takeaway is the uh, the creation of the four-layered circuit board there. Gotcha. Um, because, you know, they're, they're, they ran into a problem, and they're like, we can't build big. So you know what? Just make, them, make it wide. Yeah. Smack them together, and we'll, we'll make it work. Yeah, let's sandwich this. Like it's it's knowing how circuit boards are built, which if you don't, it's actually a really cool thing. I would go and, and learn, watch about them. Um, having done some circuit board design, I still get overwhelmed just thinking of like two board designs or uh, well, two layer designs, even like three layers crossing it. But like just to think four layer, it, it's it's just crazy. The thing that these people are able to come up with and like they were doing a lot of this by hand. I have programs that allow me to do it all on digital computers and they tell me where I'm making mistakes. But now these, these guys, they, these people were just so smart and so ahead of the time that they could just do it by hand. And it's just crazy. The world was definitely a different place. Very, very much a different place. For sure. So that's my big takeaway. What about yourself, Dave? I had never heard of dandy before at all. I I didn't know the gauntlet was derived from dandy. I didn't know. I, I mean, I don't know how to put it. I'd never heard of dandy before. So it's interesting to learn, you know, sometime we learn things that are different from our perceptions. Like I knew of gauntlet significance as a like four person multiplayer dungeon crawler, but I didn't know that there was, I didn't know that it popularized the genre. Like it didn't create it. I don't even know if dandy created it, to be honest. Um, that's up for debate too but i mean definitely the game that solidified that style of gameplay which i mean as a diablo fan is just so ingrained in my gaming life today like it's ingrained in my hobby today right like gauntlet's the game that popularized it it got it straight from dandy i mean straight from dandy like the games are so similar you know um so that was interesting to learn that and the thesis of terror. I think that's fantastic that that's what his game was called. It was called the thesis of terror. I mean, th- that's a pretty damn good name. And obviously, you know, as if it's going to be your thesis, why not call it terror? Cause uh, those things are terrifying from what I've heard. Yeah, for sure. Oh, show. So, yeah. All right, Rob. Well, uh, before I take it out of here and we look ahead to next week, is there anything you'd like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I do want to take one quick moment to say thank you so much to everyone for listening. We really hope that you enjoy and that the knowledge that we bring you is something that you enjoy. And if not, well, then thanks for listening anyway, because, you know, it's it's still time that you're here spent with us. So thank you. Yeah, what he said. (laughs) Just kidding. Thanks. All right, Rob. Well, next week, we're going to look back at the beginning of a video game series that has recently sprung back into pop culture. It recently got its own television series. This game's plot is centered around a competition in which various drivers and modified vehicles must destroy the other vehicles in an attempt to be the last one alive. Released in November of 1995, Twisted Metal is a vehicular combat game that was very successful. It spawned a whole slew of games and now a television series. And we're going to take a time 
take some time to learn all about its history. So join us again next week as we participate in a freeway free-for-all on yet another trip down memory card lane to the thing. Do be do ba ba da do 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 ah ba da oh.